<laughs> my three-year-old, he's been pulling out all the um, uh, the rubber gaskets around screens. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's driving me nuts because they're a pain in the ass to put back in. Oh, And yeah. you like just rip them out and like tear them into little pieces. Oh, thank you. Thanks, bud. Yeah, our uh, two-year-old uh, thinks everything can be put in her mouth at the moment. Um, so <laughs> Wait, it's perfect it for pandemics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting to find out. You know, she she'll go down for her nap in her room, and then you come back in later, and you pick up one of her books that she had, and there is a giant bite mark out of the book right through the middle of it and it's just fiber i'm asking are you eating that book <laughs> no of course i didn't nope that's not my bite mark <laughs> forensics let's yeah. do a little bit of yeah that. yeah so they also know how to lie hi everyone i'm andrew and i'm michael and this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. And today I have the pleasure of introducing actually a former classmate of mine, uh, someone who's gone on and done some big things in the industry. Uh, we have Chris Morton of Aero Labs joining us. And it's also Chris Morton of the University of Calgary. So he's uh, he's got multiple different um, titles that he can uh, provide for the the podcast here. But he's he's quite an expert in the area of fluid dynamics and aerodynamics. And uh, yeah, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for the warm welcome, Andrew. I think I'll try to stick with my AeroLab hat on today, or <laughs> okay. we might get into some pretty serious talk on aerodynamics um, that might. Might, might might lose some interest of your uh, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't underestimate it because we've gone down that path before. And I know we've got a few people who really appreciate it out there. So maybe not everyone to the same level that we would, but uh, we don't shy away from those topics. So don't hold back too much. All right. All right. <laughs> we talked about drafting last week, Chris, and I had to steer Andrew back twice from his uh, from talking about non uh, non dimensional analysis. Oh yes, yeah. So yeah. scale talking about scale analysis and non dimensional analysis. We could we could dive into that if necessary. But be careful what you wish for when it comes to saying <laughs> I have free reign. <laughs> no fair point. Well, uh, we'll always we'll always bring you back. So I've actually got a listener question and a former guest question that uh, I'd like to start off with. And this one is from Sean Peterson saying. Uh, he wants to know how you can be both so smart and such a better athlete than he is. Uh, he's always found that exceedingly unfair. So do you have any comments <laughs> on that? Sean asked that question? Okay. He did, yes. Okay. Uh, I would I would say that uh, my athleticism has declined rapidly since having two children and uh choosing being a father as priority over uh, over over training so it goes yeah family and aerolab priorities and university of calgary priorities and then training although i'm starting to get back into shape so it's all about priorities so i would say sean he could be an elite athlete if he wanted to i think he chooses not to that will make his day hearing that he has the option at least i was gonna say that's a very <laughs> diplomatic answer um and just for our, <laughs> the context for our listeners uh, when uh when chris was at the university of waterloo with andrew he was involved with the uh the triathlon club there i believe you founded it didn't you chris uh it 
there was times when it kind of appeared and disappeared and I made it reappear after about a five-year <laughs> okay. hiatus. Um, so I, I was the de facto creator of the club at the time um, and uh, the, the head coach for some time. Yeah, it was a good time. And Sean Peterson joined the club um, while, while I was there as a, uh, while he was a professor there, I convinced him to join, join the club at Very that cool. time. So there's, there's actually quite a bit kind of connecting us back from, I guess, since the time we graduated, really. Uh, you were in the mechatronics class the same year that I graduated from the mechanical class, and you went on to do your PhD. And more importantly, you went on to finish your PhD, which is something <laughs> I'm still working on. Um, and now you've, you've grown up and, and become a real person and started to teach at the University of Calgary. But you have a phenomenal background in aerodynamics and fluid dynamics. And you've, uh, combining this with your experience in triathlon, you've gone out and you've created some pretty unique tools that um, that operate on a very, very functional level, um, a very accurate engineering level. And that's what we would love to talk to you today about. So starting off, can you explain what Aerolabs is? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks as well for saying that I've created some pretty cool tools. I, I, I like to think that they're really, really cool and really useful. Um, but primarily, it was my integration of my interest in triathlon and aerodynamics with my background in sensors and, and instrumentation from mechatronics that kind of brought this together. And so Aerolab is a company that makes uh, a sensor, which is used for measurement of aerodynamic drag in the field. Um, so for a cyclist to be able to use um, a sensor that can assess their aerodynamic performance as well as their uh, rolling resistance um, in a field setting, not in a wind tunnel mm -hmm. or controlled setting. Um, and so the, the sensor system, I, I, I call it a sensor, but really it's a multi-sensor system because it connects to your auxiliary power meter, it connects to your speed cadence sensor. Uh, it has its own internal uh, sensors uh, that all bring in um, rich data in order to to determine um, real time as well as post analysis versions of aerodynamic performance. That's very cool. I've got I've definitely got some questions about this because we've um, we've had on the past in the past um, folks from Nocio uh, from the the Argon spinoff. Sure, yeah, uh, on the show, and they have a, a similar sensor, actually a sensor that I own, and I've played around with a little bit and I have kind of a, it's starting to say that I have a love hate relationship with it. I, I have, I, I, I really, I really enjoy using it for the, for the data that it provides, but it's still, I think, you know, in, in past episodes we've talked about, it's still, I think missing a couple of, a couple of key things for it to be, um, kind of a, an end user usable piece of equipment. So I have, I'm always super curious to talk to other people about it and their experience, especially from somebody who's, who built one from the ground up. Yeah. I think everybody is going to, uh, who's, who's been building or working with these or has purchased one, there is going to be an aspect of a love hate relationship, uh, because, uh, and, and I'm happy to talk about the details on why I agree with you completely. I even have a love hate relationship with my, with my arrow sensor. It's like um, your child. Right? And, and every, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, except, uh, I guess, well, yeah, it's very much like a child. Anything could set it off. Anything can, you, you know, you have to, you have to, <laughs> you have to be really yep. careful at keeping track of, you know, how it's been doing that day, checking on it, making sure everything's just so, uh, having a really good protocol to, and, and watchful of, of its progress, 
um, because uh, you could make a mistake uh, throughout that day and uh, your data can be no good. And if you don't have checks and balances in place to track these things, uh, that's the hate relationship. And but if 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 you do have the checks and balances in place, then it can be quite a nice relationship, and you can and you can get good quality data out of these types of devices. I love it. I wonder how far we can ride this metaphor. <laughs> yes, I know. I tried. I tried my best. <laughs> no, that was really that was really nice. I was going to say like yeah. garbage in, garbage out. You know, you give them a lot of sugar. Bedtime's kind of a mess. <laughs> it's like this, it, there's uh, there's some there are definitely some parallels here. Yeah. yeah. So today's podcast is a joint combination of aerodynamics and parenting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know about Chris, but I'm certainly no uh, no expert on parenting and not much of one on aerodynamics compared to. Yeah. I think my aerodynamics expertise far surpasses my parenting expertise. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we stay in our lanes for tonight. Yeah, let's do that. So it's, um, yeah, it's definitely, a, it can be a good tool, but uh, the garbage in, garbage out philosophy is super important. So how does this, um, in terms of setup, differentiate itself from something like using a heart rate monitor, which is pretty much a set it and forget it type of tool? Yeah, that's right. Um, some sensors, uh, they're, they're at the point where, yeah, it's, uh, you strap it on, you it, it establishes a connection with your your Garmin device or whatever device you happen to be using, Wahoo or otherwise, and and you set it and forget it and you go. Um, with with uh, this particular sensor, there's a dependency on auxiliary sensors, and if you have a dependency on an auxiliary sensor, the one most important one being a power meter, um, then you you then need, you have more than one thing that you're dependent on in order to have good quality data coming in. So uh, when you set it up, you're also setting up to make sure your power meter is calibrated correctly and has been zeroed. And then you're making sure your speed sensor is connected. And then you will have all the sensors internally that are working together to back out your key aerodynamic information. And so it's um, the set it and forget it sort of philosophy works for an individual sensor with an individual role. Um, and with a multi-sensor system that there's, there's interdependencies that where things can, can be much more challenging. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you are, like you said, dependent on the accuracy of the power meter you're using. So if it's something that has a low battery or some other flaw, or maybe it's been damaged at some point, you're obviously not going to get good aerodynamic data from that. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, we we just recently were doing testing and uh, we were doing a firmware update on our on our on our, um, our our algorithm firmware and we were doing an iOS update on our iOS app and and doing some baseline testing on the newest version of it and we uh, we we were getting we didn't get any data from our speed cadence sensor and it wasn't connecting to it and it wasn't finding it and we sat there for an hour doing that and then one of us decided to have the brilliant idea of thinking, well, maybe the battery's dead. <laughs> it's always the simplest thing. And, and, you know, you're thinking, why in the world didn't I think of that? Because I always think of those things, but it's just, <laughs> there's always something that can, can throw it off. Right. Yeah. And, and you, you have a lot of environmental effects as well that can throw a loop a little bit in terms of your interpretation of what you're getting out of your results. So, a good example of that is, you know, you might have um, a, uh, one of the key features of the device is a wind sensor out front that measures measures the wind. It's a multi, in our case, it's a multi-hole pitot probe that measures the wind vector. So it measures uh, the direction of the wind and the magnitude of the wind. And uh, if you have something like uh, cars passing by while you're testing, 
um, or you cross through an area where there's strong crosswind plus protected trees, then more strong crosswind, there's going to be expected variability in your aerodynamic drag when really a lot of the assumptions behind the algorithms are that um, for short periods of time, your drag isn't supposed to be changing so much, right? Um, at least in, in many of the devices that are on the market right now, they presume that the, you know for, for all intents and purposes, your rolling resistance is constant on this roadway. And um, during that test, we're going to give you one drag value right? They're not giving you, uh, you know, a, a histogram of drag values or, or a distribution of drag values. They're saying your drag was this, right? When really, realistically, it varies quite a bit. So uh, interpreting your result is, is a challenge. Whereas with, say, a heart rate monitor, sure, you get variation in heart rate. You get, um, but, but we have some sense of what that means. And it takes time for a general consumer and the wide market to absorb that information and start to an- understand it on a level that they can use it to their advantage. That's it. That's always been kind of my my question with these devices is, you know, how much, you know, in-depth understanding of what's going on do you need to make, to, to make use of it? Especially for testing, I understand, and this is kind of, we, Andrew and I have talked about this in the no-show context, that uh, I feel that it's a pretty useful testing tool, but as far as like, you know, using it in the field for, you know, in a race scenario, let's say, to make decisions, to make position decisions, typically, um, there's where I was, I was struggling with finding, you know, uh, with, with finding a use case for it. Um, so that's, uh, that's, it sounds like you agree with me that it, there's still quite a bit of understanding required before you can really make, make use of it. I mean, and to be perfectly honest, uh, using a power meter is hard for some people. <laughs> I think I find as a, as a coach, you know, that's, uh, that's something, you know, that, that, that some people struggle with making use of those power numbers. Never mind something as complicated as a, as an arrow sensor. Yeah. There's a few things that you mentioned there. And I mean, on the, on the power meter issue, I do draw a lot of parallels between the development of power meter technology and the development of the arrow sensor technology. Obviously they're they're different things, but the there is, there is a time lag between the onset of an introduction of the technology, which prior to the introduction, it was all heart rate based training. Right. And then suddenly power based training starts to take over in the value of the power based training. And um, the value of having an aero sensor is something that's going to take time for people to to understand and absorb and appreciate and start to utilize more and more. Now, I, I'm not saying that you can't get value out of these aero sensors at all. I'm saying that they're extremely valuable if you have an understanding of what you're trying to get out of it. Um, and if you're just trying to go on a free ride and you just want to see what your drag data looks like, that's no different than you going on a ride and seeing power data because it's kind of fun to see your power. Right. That doesn't that doesn't change how you race, <laughs> right? Seeing, seeing that your drag was 0.3 um, or seeing that your power was 160 watts uh, as at face value doesn't have any value to you until you actually take that information and try to do something with it and try to use it in your training or try to alter your training or try to alter your equipment to try to improve something there, then, then you actually have value. Um, so, and, and I think, I think without a doubt that like individual consumers are going to struggle with using an aero sensor today because there's not enough information in how to and uh, these types, this type of content of people being successful in using these things in order to better their times and improve their, improve their positioning, improve their 
um, improve their equipment selections. Uh, some of it might be because it's secretive and within, say, pro teams, and some of it might just be that uh, it's taking. A, it does take time to accept the technology, and it will take time to educate consumers on exactly what they need to do to make it better, uh, to make to make their lives easier when they race, and and to make get gain free watts. I guess is what some people say. That's a really great answer. I think um, you know it's it's kind of puts the onus back on us that the technology is what it is, right? And it does you know it, it provides you with with I totally agree with very useful information, and the missing link is is what do you do with it? Yeah. And that's where I do believe that in the short term, you know, if, if we were going to say um, in the next five years, I think the the largest benefit in the use of this technology would be within uh, trained coaches, fitters and, you know, the the pro teams that are being supported with the use of the technology or competitive teams, uh, indiv- single individuals. Uh, if you look at statistically speaking, a larger set of the population that might be interested, certainly they would uh, be a large a large amount of them that will have the expertise to understand what they're getting out of it. And I just don't think that um, they will be able to have both the patience and the time to to refine it to the point where they can test on any given day very effectively and know exactly what they want to do and have have it happen for them. Uh, it's I think you need specific training on these devices uh, in order to use them properly and efficiently. I'm, I'm thinking more thinking from an efficiency standpoint rather than, you know, uh, anyone who has no experience in aerodynamics but is an avid cyclist, which is fine. That's what you would want as your 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 consumer who would be using this device. Uh, they might go six months trying different things and not really sure if they've tracked it right, not really sure what they've gained because they have no one looking at it. I mean, even a coach looks at your power profile and tells you what your power zones are going to be and what your training regimen should be. People need to be trained on interpreting the data. And I see, I see that market being coaches, fitters, and teams. Um, as being those that have been trained to look at this data and know how to interpret it and know how to provide advice to an individual consumer. That was a very comprehensive answer. You actually answered about three of my follow-up <laughs> questions without me having to ask that. Um, the The one question I was going to ask is, do you see any point in the future that, uh, well, given your experience, you know, putting on your other hat as Professor Chris Morton, um, teaching undergrad students who have a relevant background but aren't necessarily experts in the area, do you see any future where this trickle-down could occur to the point where we have the firmware developed enough that the average person can use it? I think the average person, again, the average person can use it, <laughs> but they don't know what to do with the information. And what you're saying is, is will they know what to do with the information at a certain point? Um, is really what your question is, right? Because they, anybody can strap it to their bike, but probably many of them will make mistakes along the way, right? And, and so I do think we will get there eventually. Uh, I think uh, that's why I'm comparing it sort of to the power meter evolution. Um, there was quite some time before there was a strong uptick in, mm-hmm. um, in, in the power meter sales worldwide and the adoption of power meters. There, there was quite a lag and we're seeing that lag with aero sensor technology and it's both the development of the technology and as you put it, the firmware that 
um, helps to make things easier for an individual consumer. And, um, and, and then also uh, the consumers gaining more knowledge and understanding of how to use, utilize this information. The more you start to see this appear in, you know, uh, side discussions within pro tour teams and um, side discussions of triathletes, um, the more and more the consumers are going to be understanding the value that has been providing them. And I guess using the analogy of power meters, um, there was quite a while where it was an extremely expensive option. So you're looking at three to four thousand dollars, something that was wired, something that didn't do proper data logging. Um, and then there was also the question of accuracy. And then what do you do with the data once you get it? Yep. And since that time, there have been a number of books that have been written. People have a physiological understanding of what you actually do with the power, how you train with it and how you improve yourself. So I would assume that once this becomes a little bit more common and a little bit more accessible for people, you will get those, I hate the word, but those influencers um, who write the books, try to explain it to the layperson so that Joe Blow can pick up this device and provided they follow the proper test protocols, they can potentially get good actionable data that they can use. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited for that time happening. Um, well, I'll put an asterisk on that because um, right now I think I have the understanding and I'm happy that other people don't because I can leverage it. <laughs> well, well, uh, hopefully um, Aerolab can provide uh, for the people who may not have the understanding, they can provide access uh, for them to be able to get value out of it. I just think that the best way for them to get value most efficiently is to have, say, a certified fitter. Um, you might want to use the term arrow fitter, for example. Uh, maybe that will become a, a buzzword. Um, but someone who who has been trained in the in the integration of bicycle fit biomechanics with aerodynamics, and I mean, I, I even have a you know a a research um, project that with the university that that I'm um, bringing to the forefront, which is looking at um, the physiological impacts of, um, aerodynamically optimized positions. So mm. what, what impact on your, and, and, and if tailored training can enable you to adapt to those positions. Oh, that's the million dollar question now. So is it like, mm -hmm. yeah, do you, do you fit to the position or do you, do you make the most of the position? Exactly. Yeah. And so that, that's an open question that, and I do see the books being written on that. Um, and, and that being oh, very cool. a huge, a, a, a huge role in the future of aerodynamics and cycling and perform human performance overall. When you're ready to talk about it, we need to have you back on the show because that is definitely a hot topic in uh, in bike fit and aerodynamics right now. Yeah. Or if you need participants, I'm, I'm <laughs> yes. just down the road. Don't forget about me. That's right. We should have. Yeah. If a COVID situation wasn't around, I, we would have just met up for this, I think. Yeah. I'm, I have to, uh, I total sidebar. I signed up for this um, virtual race, um, the extreme triathlon virtual race. And some of the, um, some of the legs that I have to complete have elevations that I just like, I cannot do in Ontario. So I was going to, I was just thinking about Andrew. I was thinking about you in Calgary. It's like I probably do this in Andrew's backyard. This, this run that's that has like seven you know a thousand meters of elevation and 15 kilometers it's like straight up a mountain so yeah maybe i'll maybe i'll i'll, I'll, uh, I'll come out that way one day too well i heard andrew speaking recently because i was listening to one of your recent podcasts about how we how wind how windy it is out here in calgary <laughs> and how you oh yeah you can't aero test out here <laughs> so um 
I would like to think that we developed it out in Calgary at Aerolab. So if it works here, it's going to work anywhere. Well, actually, let's dig into that a bit. You you brought up one point earlier about having a multi-hole pitot tube. Yeah. And um, this is something that, that NoShio does not use. I don't believe anyone else on the market uses currently. And for the people who aren't aware, the, the fact that you do take multiple measurements allows you to actually determine wind direction which is crucial in getting some of this data as opposed to just having the forward component of the, the velocity that you're measuring. Yes. Yeah. And I think uh, it's, it's something where it's a source of variability we eliminate um, by taking it into account. And, and a day-to-day you know, sort of repeatability, um, you, could, you could imagine being extremely frustrated with having the exact same equipment, the exact same position, the exact same total bike rider weight. You go out and you get a drag value and you see 0.315 or whatever, if you're on your road bike, let's say in the drops, and then you go out the next day and you get 0.325 and you're saying, did my body position change? Did my hand position change? What did I do differently? I could have sworn I had the same position and everything was fine. But what you realize is um, perhaps there's yaw effects that are playing a role in how that test day went because day one was calm and day two had a five kilometer per hour crosswind. Um, and we've we've started to characterize in a lot of detail those effects, particularly seeing sail effects in Calgary. It's actually quite exciting. We we have real data showing that you can get a measurable sail effect from from your oh, deep di- deep dish wheels, which has been hard to validate um, when you have a full bicycle rider system as opposed to a, just a single wheel in a wind tunnel. Um, that is super fun. Yeah. Um, that for, for our listeners, just a little bit of a, of an explanation. We, Andrew and I have touched on this when we were talking about uh, deep wheels, but there is a, a theoretical, well, and now Chris is saying a very real point at which you get enough uh, enough yaw in your in your airflow, so enough side wind, where you're you're actually starting to see potentially negative drag for some from some of your components. Is that right? There is a potential for negative drag. Certainly the overhaul is not negative drag on the whole whole bike rider system, right. but just right. from the wheel perspective, it's measured as negative drag. And oftentimes that's a very controlled test. But for us, it's more, we see a dip in drag um, where we normally would see uh, the drag at a higher stable value when you have just a straight um, stable wind. That's a non-crosswind. Oh, that's super exciting. Yeah, so having that wind yaw effect accounted for sort of in, enables you not only to give you a performance measure of your CDA, but we also have characterized what, well, I just refer to it as wind average drag. So you basically are binning your data points based on what yaw you were experiencing that moment in time. And so you end up with a a curve that shows your drag performance across all wind yaw that you encountered that day. Hmm. This is something that you would typically see manufacturers provide where they have, for example, their their latest advertising literature, because that's really all they care about aerodynamic data for. But um, you you see a sweep from, say, minus 17 to plus 17 degrees, for example. Yep. And you get this curve that's uh, very nonlinear and often it is asymmetric as well because of the drivetrain. Yes. Um, but now you're able to provide this just by having someone go out and ride and taking that drag or the uh, the velocity components relative to the rider. That's right. Yes. And we've done, I mean, obviously you can get unlucky. You can go out on a day and it's dead calm and yeah, you're, you were at zero yell the whole time, <laughs> and, but then you can be on another day and 
you know, get a sweep that's quite beautiful. And so you, we, we have circuits that we found that really produ- provide a really nice sweep of yaw angles um, in particular areas in Calgary where you do a, a loop and you're really experiencing a good sweep uh, on, on a typical day. And we're seeing those yaws that go upwards and beyond 20 degrees, especially when you're cresting hills mm. um, and you're going a little bit slower, you're certainly going to be seeing huge yaw angles. Um, I mean, it even goes beyond the range of our sensor, which kind of taps out close to 35, 40 degrees yaw. And you, because if you're, if you're at a standstill at the top of a hill, right. yeah, right, right. The, the yaw angle is 90 degrees. It doesn't affect your aerodynamics anymore. It just tips you over, but <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, but that's how, oh, that's such a cool thing to have because, you know, again, and I'm, I feel, I'm, I'm not panning no shield at all. Uh, that's the sensor I've used, but, um, even doing, even doing control tests, you have to do all your tests in as tight a period of time as you, as you, as you can possibly do it because you don't have any any yaw data it's all assuming zero yaw and so like you said chris if you come back on the next day you're basically your baseline has, you have to start over you you're, you have to create a new baseline and then that's compare right. everything to the to the new to the new baseline and not not the baseline you set yesterday that's right and that became um i mean protocol is a big challenge there in ensuring that your baselines are consistent from day to day and uh, we, we had a lot of struggle, uh, initially when I was making my first prototypes in that regard. And it wasn't until we really refined our protocol, which is a lot different, I think, than the NoTo protocol. Um, ours, uh, you know, if we can talk protocol a little bit and talk about what that means, um, I think it would be worthwhile, especially when it comes to getting good, reliable, uh, aerodynamic data. Yeah. I think the, the protocol is a really important point to touch on. Um, but maybe l- before we get into that, um, why don't we talk about the, the kind of data that you do provide, and then we can use the protocol discussion to to figure out how you provide that data. Sure. Yeah. So, so it's sort of like what the, what what are we looking at when you run a test, and what does the raw data look like? Yeah. So, what does the raw data look like? What can you expect to see as a as a user of this? Um, so, I know you've mentioned rolling resistance. You've mentioned. Um, or I don't know if you mentioned specifically grade changes, but I know that's a big component of what you're measuring. Um, and things like just your, your riding velocity, the, the yaw angle, obviously we've talked a lot about. So what, as a user, what information can you expect to get back from a test? Right. So the, the, when you're using our sensor, um, the raw data that's collected includes all the internal sensors in the, in the AeroLab sensor. So that, that would be uh, an IMU uh, GPS sensor that's recording position tracking as well as GPS velocity and elevation, uh, as well as the quality of the GPS signal, um, air temperature, barometric pressure, relative humidity, wind pressure in the multiple ports from our multi, multi-hole multi probe. Uh, then we have the auxiliary sensors that are connected, power data, speed data, cadence data. So you get all that raw data. It's sampled at about 25 samples a second, internally saved at that rate even though the internal code loop is much quicker than that, um, that's doing its own algorithm, the actual rate of saving to s- storage on board the sensor itself is uh, about 25 hertz. Uh, this, this data then, after, after you conduct a session where you, you've decided to test your, say, baseline position, um, it connects to our iOS app and transfers the data wirelessly. That pushes to a cloud, uh, which does some data validation. Uh, the data validation is um, recomputing everything that was done in real time, and it is also checking uh, for power meter dropouts, checking for speed sensor dropouts, 
um, figuring out how to deal with that data in order to be able to give you back the best result possible. Because there can be momentary issues with sensors where you get a sudden, you know, zero power reading for whatever reason. It does happen from time to time. And so we have to, we have to do a va- validation check on the data in general. And, you know, the power thing is just one example of the validation checks that we do. That data comes back and the summary is your CDA um, results lap by lap. And when I say lap in in our protocol, um, you do an out and back or a circuit course where it's a closed loop. And uh, each lap is a completion of an out and back or a completion of a closed loop. Um, And so you'll get a lap summary of your power information as well as your speed, your CDA, your rolling resistance, um, this type of information that can be charted over multiple laps. You can look for outliers in those laps if something went wrong. Uh, we automatically detect some of those outliers by doing a standard deviation on the data set. Um, just computing that quickly will give you an idea of how much variability you have as a rider um, in terms of your CDA variability from lap to lap. And, and so that's what's displayed to you within the app. And you can chart that historically over time by repeating the same test the next day. You can also try out different equipment and compare different equipment configurations within the app. Is, uh, is anything displayed on a, on a head unit, uh, your Garmin, your Wahoo, whatever? Yeah, so uh, we have a Connect IQ app. The Connect IQ app displays uh, your power, your speed, as well as uh, optionally, we could display CDA. Um, we choose not to, and, and there's a very good reason why. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I think I know where uh, this is so, going, yeah. <laughs> so primarily the the head unit is passive and it's only to provide instructions to the to the rider cool and those instructions are audible and vibration um it, it's also a display it's also showing you a display of saying what you're in a test you have to turn around go the other way mm-hmm. that kind of thing but we make sure it's audible and it also vibrates uh for and when you're entering into different stages of your test so that you can focus on maintaining your position throughout that test and you're not looking with your head down and getting so excited about seeing a CDA value. Um, but you can certainly glance with your eyes and make sure you're maintaining your power, you're maintaining your position, and you're in the right state of the protocol for for running the test. Yeah, if nothing else, I would uh, I would want to see that just everything's connected and working because it would suck to do you know a whole bunch of loops and then find out you're you know, your power meter wasn't, wasn't, wasn't connecting for some reason to the, uh, to the sensor. And you'd be like, oh, son of a, yeah. That goes without saying. Absolutely. Yeah. The, that, that, that it's really important for sure. I mean, our iOS app also like it, it, it provides verbal commands. So if you didn't have a Garmin unit uh-huh. and you just threw your, your iOS, um, you know, device in your back pocket, if you're using your phone, um, it will audibly tell you what to do and it oh, will cool. tell you when something's disconnected. So it just tells you, uh, go, go, go. You get up to speed. Uh, it tells you then get in position, maintain position. It'll tell you turn around. You know, it, it goes through the step, step-by-step procedure verbally. So you can just have wireless Bluetooth headset on and, uh, or, or, you know, little earbuds and, and you'll be able to conduct the test without the app and it will give you the on the fly instructions. If you happen to not have a Garmin head unit. Cool. Yeah. So when I spoke about these laps and the protocol, I think it is important to point out that, you know, we, we've found that our data for a wide variety of riders, whether they're untrained or trained riders, even in strong wind conditions and light wind conditions, certainly in light wind conditions, things converge very quickly. Um, We'll see CDA values converge within 10 seconds of starting your test, which 
Um, oh, wow. That's crazy fast. In calm conditions with a good rider, of course, 10 seconds and you're converged and you could, you could turn around and go the other way. Um, but so what we have said is, is a moderate level distance where we can expect to see in under strong and gusting wind conditions, we'll still see convergence. Um, and that's 800 meters. So it's an 800 meter out and back stretch. Um, and we typically try to run that three, three times at a minimum, six times is ideal. You'll get six out and backs. Um, and then that will give you a really, really good assessment of your baseline, as well as a good assessment of your own variance and the variance that day, yaw effects that day, that kind of thing. Are you looking to do this at, um, as far as test execution at roughly target race speed when you're, when you're guiding folks to do this? How do you, how do you, yeah, typically, typically we would want them in their race condition and at race power and at race speed, um, Uh, basically trying to emulate the condition that they would be in on, on race day as much as we can. If we're targeting a specific test, meaning if the rider, um, if the rider is interested in uh, characterizing simultaneously their rolling resistance and their aerodynamic drag, we do have to integrate a bit of variability in their power in order to be able to tease out uh, CDA from CRR. Hmm. Um, it, it, it's a requirement since you only have a single equation and two unknowns. That's it. Well, um, <laughs> you're, you're, you, you took my question. Well, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to maybe ask it formally, but yes, um, sure. that's an interesting one to talk about for sure. How is it that you can, you can get, you can solve for both of those unknowns? I mean, you, you said it, Chris, and for our listeners, um, CRR is the coefficient of rolling resistance, right? So, um, if you listen to our last episode, Andrew was really, uh, explicit in talking about, you know, when you're assuming your drivetrain is not too, totally dirty, the two primary drains on your power are aerodynamic drag would be the, the first and then uh, coefficient of rolling resistance. So that's the overcoming the, mm-hmm. the loss of um, the loss of power through the deformation of your, of your, of your tires and also the, you know, the, the, the vibrations that, uh, that uh, John Thornham was talking about, the, the up and down movement. And that can vary significantly from course to course. So I know um, Topo in New Zealand is known for having a very rough, uh, I forget the, the name, tar and chip uh, type yeah, asphalt. Chip where it's, yeah, chip seal. Um, and, and everyone who rides that course says, you know, it just feels like it sucks the power out of you because you're maintaining a certain number that you're used to with your training, but, uh, but you're just going slower. And that really plays with the minds of a lot of people, whereas the New Zealand natives, um, they're used to that because that's how all their roads roads are. So it's easy for them to compensate mentally for that. Um, So it would follow that that same kind of variance in road surface could potentially play a large role. Like say you're doing a loop where half the loop is on the the chip seal and half is on um, kind of a more of a standard flat asphalt or a concrete or something with very low rolling resistance. So that would be a significant challenge to account for that in your, your data analysis. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, we, when you pick a test location, you try to be strategic about it and have something where you're going to have fairly consistent road conditions, unless the goal is for you to, um, test different surfaces, in which case you would want to, um, test on one surface in one circuit and test on a different surface in another circuit to be able to have a clear differentiation between the CRRs between the two. Um, so yeah, the re the reason why this 
becomes difficult is, uh, as I put it earlier, I think I said, yeah, you've got one equation and um, at a minimum you have two unknowns. I mean, there's even more unknowns in the equation that I'm not even mentioning, but um, this could, we could dive down a rabbit hole, but for all <laughs> intents and purposes, let's, let's, let's just say CRR is a constant, <laughs> um, for a given surface, yep. uh, when, when, and it doesn't vary with speed. And let's say, um, let's say that CDA is a constant and doesn't vary with speed, uh, within the range of speeds that you're testing. Uh, then you have one equation and two unknowns. You're still quite, it, it's, it's a challenge there. So what the one thing you have to your advantage is that, um, the aerodynamic drag scales with the cube of the ground velocity, or sorry, the aerodynamic drag scales with the square of the ground velocity um, if it's a zero wind day, um, or, or, and the power, the power to overcome your aerodynamic drag s- scales with the cube of the uh, velocity right. uh, in, in a windless day. Um, and that's the simplest way to think of it is picture a windless day. Um, and then the rolling resistance scales linearly with the velocity um, in terms of power to overcome rolling resistance. And, and it's that difference in the scaling with velocity that allows you to tease out the two terms huh. if you have variable data. Um, there's some clever ways of doing it. One of the famous ones is referred to as the Chung method yep. Um, yep. Or, or the virtual virtual elevation method. There's also another method called a linear regression approach, which is, um, you know, started being worked on in the 90s. Um, and then there's uh, nonlinear regression approaches as well. Um, so we, I mean, of course, I wanted to implement every single one of these to see which one was going to do the best. <laughs> Typical engineer. <laughs> so, so what came out of that is, uh, is, is our own version of a combination of these techniques uh, that, that, uh, um, no one, in, no one really knows, uh, except for myself and, and, uh, my trusted, uh, my trusted business partner, although he doesn't have an engineering degree. So I don't think he really knows how it works either. <laughs> so it's like the, the Heinz ketchup <laughs> recipe of, of Aerolab. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Nice. So, so I've got, I've got a question. So do what sort of inputs when, uh, when you're starting a test, this is kind of like a question that applies to, uh, the protocol, but also very relevant to teasing out rolling resistance is what do you need to feed the system as inputs, um, other than what it collects from the sensors when you, when you're testing? Yeah. So, um, you need to know your bike plus rider weight and everything carried thereby. So like yep. every, everything, the total weight, um, it needs to be there in order to be able to compensate for, you know, excel- effects of acceleration, inertial effects, as well as uh, changes in elevation and potential energy gain, um, gain or losses. Uh, you also need to input, um, if you haven't done a roll- wheel rollout um, uh, before, but basically you need to know your circumference of your wheel. Um, this can be determined, is typically determined automatically by your Garmin. The wheel circumference, you you can allow it to determine automatically um, or you can do a rollout where you determine your precise wheel circumference. And that's when you're using a wheel speed sensor to get a very precise estimate of um, the distance you've traveled and the speed you're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to know what your circumference is so that every rev is a very precise down to the millimeter or submillimeter accuracy. Right. Because uh, you're, what, you're what saying your that's, way, that's, that's more accurate than a GPS speed distance. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If it's well calibrated, mm-hmm. it's more accurate. Uh, I, I mean... It definitely. I mean, it, 
it doesn't really have very much random error. Right. It's just counting wheel wheel ticks. Um, there isn't much random error in that. It's just tick, tick, tick. Um, but it can have a bias if you've calibrated it incorrectly. You, a huge bias if you sure. set the wheel circumference incorrectly. So. I remember reading, I think it was Josh Portner's um, Silka blog where he was, he had a, we had a plot of pressure versus wheel circumference. So, you know, yep. tire pressure can muck that up. So you're, would you suggest that you want right. to measure it every time? Yep. And we were recently, we recently completed a project, uh, with, uh, with zip and we were working with their new, their new release of their wheels at the time. We didn't even know what they were called. I was just labeling them based on what they sent to us. And, uh, for every single tire we tested, we were testing multiple pressures. We had to measure the circumference at every pressure. We were measuring tire temperature as well to ensure that there wasn't any significant uh, variation in temperature between tests because you can change the 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 way the rubber interacts with the road and how inelastic that interaction is changes with temperature slightly. Hmm. Um, uh, this is something that's been reported on as well by Tom Onalt in his yes. uh, in in his his bike blog that he had uh, years ago. He created that spreadsheet and he actually compensates for temperature within it. So. Yeah, the that that project definitely challenged us to to be able to account for all of those variables, and you would you would want to record those down. And we have notes sections where you can put that kind of information in when you're doing testing. If you're doing specific CRR testing, you know, but but for the most part, we do envision the initial uh, uptick of users with this will be primarily CDA. Although in the back of my mind, I see a ton of potential for people who have expertise in helping people with CRR. Um, it's just, they just don't see it as a big deal and they just say a tire is a tire, but no, that, boy, yeah. can you get huge savings by optimizing your optimizing your tire with your rim and optimizing your pressure. I think there's, I think people are starting to come around. We had, when we had John from flow on, he, he's that that's, we, you know, we started, I wanted to talk about, you know, the aerodynamics of his rims and we ended up talking probably 80% of the conversation was about tires and <laughs> tire, you know, tire rim interface and all of that stuff. And that was, uh, that was a fascinating conversation because I, I kind of, you know, styled myself, not, maybe not as an expert, but somebody who, who has a very good grasp on things. And I didn't. So it was, um, it was, super, super worthwhile talking about this stuff. Yeah. We've had conversations with John as well. Um, and we, we had a project working with them doing rolling resistance testing with their, with their wheels that was ongoing for a couple of years. And, uh, and yeah, we discovered some really neat things. I mean, I think earlier I said, um, uh, I said, you know, it's one, one equation, two unknowns, CRR, right. CDA. And let's assume that CRR doesn't vary with speed when in fact it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but the relationship's complicated and, and oftentimes you can neglect the, the quadratic portion of that variance or, <laughs> the, right. And, you're taking and, me, you're taking me back. So I'm, I listen, I'm only, I'm only <laughs> a, an undergraduate mechanical engineer. So you got, you may have to, uh, tone it down but although you know quadratic is more high school yeah i think that's fair game i'm just being i'm being coy so chris on the subject of uh rolling resistance the the only unit that i've experienced with is the notio and it asks you to plug in uh, a fixed value and then it gives you some tables for depending on what tire you you may be running and uh 
it'll kind of it'll guide you to that decision if you're completely in the dark as to what that number should look like. Um, but knowing kind of uh, going through the going through the research that I've done about rolling resistance and understanding how so many things affect it um, and how not only, you know, tire choice, but tire age and tube choice and tire pressure and and certainly the surface that you're rolling on and temperature and all sorts of other stuff affect this value. I've, I've always been kind of uncomfortable with uh, with with inputting a, a CRR value and then using that as one of the inputs because, you know, and we talked about this in the beginning, it's garbage in, garbage out. And if you have an unreliable measure for coefficient of rolling resistance as one of your key inputs, then how reliable is your, you know, your aero data at the end of the day? So um, I understand that you guys do it a little bit differently. Yeah, and I think uh, I should say first and foremost, it took a long time to get to where we are with that type of a, uh, you know, deviation from just inputting a constant value. Certainly, I think it's uh, logical to start there, uh, and uh, and and it's a logical place so that you can simplify the equation, and then you're just rearranging and solving for the unknown, which is your CDA. Uh, for the most part, you know, I put it simplistically, but effectively you can take that one variable out of the equation if you can hold it constant at least. And even if it's off, then it's at least off by a constant, uh, value hopefully. Um, and that's, that's a good starting point. I think with any sensor, I think what we found is, um, by incorporating a protocol that enables you to tease out both values, uh, CDA and CRR, which basically what it starts with is we do start with an estimate. And then that estimate becomes refined based on how the data fits. And that that happens in our cloud processing. So the it basically will refine the value and you'll see it adjust up or down um, by any amount. It, it, the, the algorithm decides what provides the best fit to the data. Um, and that that's through your your, your ride that you did of say three laps or six laps out and back or three laps or six laps in a looped course um, 800 meters roughly, uh, is sort of the minimum that we would, uh, recommend, uh, on, on any given day. So the, that, that, that algorithm to be able to tease that out, uh, is connected both to the quality of the data that you're bringing in and the, um, adhering to a protocol, which requires some teaching and some, and some, uh, practice. And, and the reason for that is because the protocol involves you have to actually vary your power uh and and that varies your speed and that allows you to separate out those two variables quite effectively okay the the challenge with that is if you you know and we we went through years of development testing with this with a variety of riders of different skills one of the biggest challenges is you get a rider who's ftp let's say their ftp is 300 watts and uh, you say, well, I want you to do an out and back at uh, 180, and then I want you to do an out and back at 220, and then I want you to do an out and back at 260, and then I want you to do an out and back at 300. And what you find is their shoulders, their torso, their upper body changes in terms of their relaxed state depending on how close they are to their FTP if they're, an, um, if they're not a seasoned rider. If they're a seasoned rider, 
they will maintain a pretty steady position and that works in your favor in terms of teasing it out. Um, sure. And so, so that is one of the take homes when we, we uh, started looking at this technique is quite, a, uh, quite often it's uh, something that you have to make sure that your rider is comfortable in their position at a range of powers. It doesn't need to be such a wide range. It doesn't have to be, you know, 200 watt you know, <laughs> variance yeah. between the upper and lower bounds. But um, certainly if you're, I would say if your your target race is a half Ironman, you know, I would typically say send the rider out and say, you know, do do um, your first um, out and back, and I'd like to see you do a couple of out and backs of eight hundred meters at you know your sixty five percent of your FTP, and then do a couple of out and backs at eighty five percent of your FTP, and then a couple of out and backs at one hundred percent of your FTP, something like that. Hmm. Um, so where sixty five might be the low end of what an Ironman race pace would be, and eighty five closer to the you know the half Ironman race pace. That's a really interesting way to handle that problem because CRR is not something that most people have a feel for. Um, if you were to go and ask most cyclists, you know, what is an appropriate CDA? I, I would say there's a fair number, at least to the competitive ones that would say, you know, 0.2 is really good. 0.3 is bad unless, you know, you're a giant cyclist. If you went out to someone and said, uh, what's your CRR or is a 0.1 CRR good? And a lot of them would say, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have what? no idea. <laughs> and, you know, is 0.005 good? They don't know either. So asking a user to input that data, unless they have a lot of familiarity with it, that's really going to be a tough, uh, a tough estimate for yeah. them to make. So, so we don't ask them. We, yeah, we don't ask them at all. We, we start with our own estimate. That is a middle ground estimate that can go up or down and can refine based on the data that has been assessed and collected. So um, you you are not in control unless you want to override control of your CR. So here's a here's a question for you. You've isolated one variable in theory as long as your rider's not rocking or changing shape too much, their their CDA should be roughly constant. Yeah. Um, and you're solving for the CRR. Now, what if you want to optimize your race setup and play around with tire widths or tire pressures? Can you do the same where instead of riding at different powers, you run at different tire setups and see what uh, what ends up being the most aerodynamic? Yeah, of course. Or, well, sorry, not the most aerodynamic, the most uh, uh, efficient. efficient. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we look at the problem more. I mean, there's an interesting way that we analyze the data and you can... You can um, if you're optimizing something like that, you I would recommend taking a holistic approach because your change in tire pressure is changing your width and therefore is changing your characteristics of aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. um, and it's changing your rolling resistance simultaneously. Yep. So what you what we do is um, we initially lump the parameters together to optimize them both concurrently. Oh, cool. Um, and so we ad you adjust your tire pressure and you keep doing tests and then you have the two parameters of energy losses merged and you find the minimum. And then you tease out what the values are. Oh, okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. Cause at the end of the day, you just want to be like, you want to be as efficient as possible. You want to know where your efficiency point is. What's your biggest efficiency yeah. point. And if you're changing tire pressure and your, which changes rolling resistance and aerodynamics, start off by just saying, look, these two terms go together and we can lump it into a single term and we can just look for the minimum. That's beautiful. Yeah. The, the lowest CDA doesn't win a race. It's the fastest time. However you exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I guess the only variable there is like, you know, is what is the, what's the pavement condition on your, in, uh, you know, at the race. Sure. Venue. That's right. And that's why, I mean, part of our, uh, you know, part of our patent that we have is, is while we're collecting this data, we're also collecting um, how the vibrations of the road are propagating through the frame and how that's correlating to your CRR. 
Um, and we have, you know, when you hit the break point, you know, you, you, which is commonly referred to as a point where like your CRR drastically changes because you're bouncing a lot more on the road. Mm -hmm. That's a detectable condition. Um, and as well as you can correlate the vibrations with the general curve of your rolling resistance. And so as we get to learn, you know, that, that rider's performance and how their frame behaves and how the energy losses behave, we can start to look forward at predicting based on the race course, what, what kind of tire pressure you should have, what kind of um, tire width you should be running on, on if, if you happen to know, if you can input information on the type of course, we can, we can then do that. Or if you can pre-ride it, for example. Yeah. If you had the opportunity to pre-ride the, the you know, the day before, two days before you could, you probably plot that, that break point, um, which for, for listeners, uh, if you go back to our chat with John, he talked about this at length and this is, uh, the break point that, that Chris just mentioned is basically, um, what your coefficient of rolling resistance will do with increasing tire pressure is it'll slowly decrease until you hit a certain point and then it'll rapidly increase this kind of point of inflection. Uh, it's really neat to see this stuff in the test data. Uh, and I think this is what Chris is talking about. So this is where it would be really neat to know at what pressure are you at your most efficient from, from a rolling resistance perspective. Yeah. And sometimes it's a, a balance, right? You could, uh, you could sacrifice and hit and know that you're going to be hitting the break point during a certain segment of the course, but then overall your performance will be uh, better. A good example of this, not with rolling resistance, but with aerodynamics is, um, I think, uh, I, w I was, uh, looking at a test case of, uh, the just recently of the Slovenia national championship time trial and the rider who won, there was a 7% grade climb. He used his road bike on the climb and then did a bike switch at the top of the climb <laughs> to a TT bike. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> Check it out. And when you do the analysis, it actually pans out that even though we lost 12 seconds on, um, uh, on this bike switch, his TT gained him so much more and his road bike gained him so much on the climb that it, in the end, he won by nine seconds. He, he, he won <laughs> the national championship. That, that broke my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you should be able to climb on a TT bike. I mean, if you're, I don't know, I guess certainly, certainly, but the, the road bike could be as much as four pounds lighter. Um, and okay. still be UCI legal okay. and, uh, and aerodynamics doesn't matter as much. So yeah, you can sure. sort of optimize your setup based on, you know, you can often more efficiently put in power as well on a road bike and less efficiently put in power when you're in a TT. So, you know, your, your ability physiologically to put in 400 Watts when you're in a time trial position is not the same as 400 Watts when you're sitting upright. So I think it was those two things combined that made their team make the decision or their, their coach make the decision, we're going to do a bike switch. I've, I've actually heard of this before, and I think it's a very creative use of the rules. Um, but yes. it brings up the point, actually, that uh, when you're looking at, at just a purely downhill section, uh, a light bike actually is disadvantaged. So if you have more weight, but the same aerodynamics on a downhill section, you'll Correct. go faster. So potentially you could add ballast. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> Throw me the water bottles. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, yeah, this uh, I'm, I'm getting getting ideas in my head. But that's yeah, it, it's awesome to be able to the fact that you can actually calculate rolling resistance as opposed to have to input it. That you know, and I've said this already probably three or four times in this conversation. That makes me feel a lot more. You know, it gives me the warm fuzzy about the the end results. It makes me a lot more confident <laughs> in the final numbers. Yeah. No. And it took us a long a long time to get there. I think it was close. 
you know, getting, getting the algorithms down pat was uh, well over two years of, of solid work on the rolling resistance piece. And, uh, I think part of it is because I w- I'm an obsessive, you know, scientist who, you know, would get angry with myself when I can't figure something out. So I would just spend days on this. So, um, yeah, until, until I got it right. And there's only, you know, I, I'm not going to try to fake the data, fake it till you make it. I'm going to make sure I just keep going at it until I get the, get the solution that I'm looking for when it comes to the, the actual energy balance that's at play and how to tease those out. Well, if I were one of your customers, hearing you say that is a lot of encouragement. So <laughs> that would make me feel much, much better. Generally speaking, we have had a lot of positive feedback from people. They, they're, they're also very, um, happy and understanding of the fact that, you know, I built our first prototypes and, uh, myself by hand and, and that, you know, they break, uh, once in a while, but now that we've <laughs> actually went into full-fledged manufacturing, injection molding, final hardware design, that's been properly done by, you know, our, our team of electrical and computer engineers. And now, now we're really, where we really have a pretty sleek and solid product, um, uh, and we've been pretty secretive about what it looks like and how it's going to look in the end and what the iOS app looks like. But all of that is going to be rolling out over the next uh, three months, no pun intended. Uh, we, we're all about puns, actually, in the show. So you're, <laughs> if you, you feel free to you know torture metaphors and, and, and roll out puns sure. as much as you like. Um, so you, you mentioned your rollout. Um, that was going to be, that leads really nicely into my next question is, you know, uh, I went through your website and uh, it, it was a lot of, uh, you know, get in touch. If you're interested, get in touch. So there's not, yeah. there isn't a, a, a buy now button. That's right. That's right. And um, I'll be the first to tell you that, you know, there is not going to be a buy now button for consumers uh, in our first launch. Our first launch is for coaches, uh, teams, fitters, engineers, and research scientists. Um, cool that are looking at this product uh we view it as um and and this is something that we can talk about briefly as well we view it as um something where uh an athlete will book a time uh similar to getting a velodrome test or a wind tunnel test and have three hours of time with a professional aero fitter who may also include some some type of bike fit as well uh and use our sensor and it just gives the fitters way more flexibility in terms of the services they're offering because they can do it right out of their backyard um, rather than the limited amount of spaces you have in velodromes within North America. You know what this could be now? Because I've done this. I've played around with this a little bit with the the no-show sensor, and I've, uh, I used to do a lot more bike fits than I do these days, but uh, I always, you know, my brain, this is the way my brain works. This would be, this would work really well with, um, with uh, one of Andrew's flight trainers to take it onto the field and, uh, you know, set somebody up on that trainer, make adjustments on the trainer and then send them off on their, on their, uh, 800 meter loops. Absolutely. And I do, I mean, uh, each, each fitter might have a different style for how they like to set up for a day or if they have to want to do like mega days where they have, you know, a cluster of athletes that come out and, and, and maybe they knock off about 10 athletes in a day and get yep. them to test a variety of things. I mean, uh, for us, um, we want to show the fitters and the coaches that there is huge value in this uh, product offering uh, in, in their toolkit. Um, we want to be able to say in thirty in thirty minutes to an hour you can test six different positions um, wow. on an athlete. Um, that's what we're we're targeting. We're targeting that market, so we want to make sure that that 
that process is efficient. The, the fitter is well-trained. And when you go there, it's go time and you're getting, you're getting a ton of value for a short span of time. That's awesome because there's, um, yeah, that's, that doesn't, there's no, there's no really any other tool out there that, I mean, the virtual wind tunnel that, uh, that four eyes has that Andrew pioneered, um, that you can get a lot of density in that as well, but it's a different style of testing. And Andrew and I have talked about the pros and cons of, uh, Mm -hmm. of, uh, field testing versus his, his, uh, VWT. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic in itself. I mean, I get to ask this question a lot, you know, and they'd say, are, are we looking at the the end of wind tunnel testing because of this sensor? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, we're not. Wind tunnels definitely have their role in their place. Um, CFD has a huge role in product development. I see this as a holistic approach. You know, if you're looking at it from a product development standpoint or, or research development standpoint uh, for manufacturers, designers, it's part of the holistic toolkit for defining the performance of your product and iterating on that design process, CFD, wind tunnel testing, field testing, and it closes the whole loop. When you're looking at bike fitting um, right now, I think there is still some room to, you know, for, for each of these uh, product offerings to find a place and, and find where they belong in the market. And there may still be adjustments down the road in how that takes shape. I mean, we're just launching, officially in turn to, to our fitters this year. So, and, and to our coaches and our teams, um, you know, with our, with our flagship products. So, so there's a lot of room where that sort of changes a little. And I think one of the challenges is it is, it is somewhat difficult to have direct comparisons between these methods. Um, because you can't say that the wind tunnel reflects that of a field environment. And you can't say that CFD reflects that of a field environment or that of a wind tunnel. They each have you can't you can't perfect the boundary conditions on your wind tunnel to match that of your CFD while you can try (laughs) but (laughs) and maybe and maybe that's more of a question for Andrew (laughs) but and and then the boundary conditions in the field are constantly changing um and and good luck trying to match those with CFD yeah I think you bring up some great points there and Chris I know we've talked about this at length in the past but um I, I really am in full agreement with you there that there is no right answer in terms of what the best method is. I think it's something that you have to approach with your eyes open and using all the tools available. Um, so you you can take advantage of some of the benefits that a wind tunnel offer or that, that CFD offers or that field testing offers because each of them has its own very, very significant advantages and disadvantages. Yes. But if you have the tools available, why not why not use them all? Oh yeah, certainly. If if costs were no option, you would use them all all day long. You'd be you'd be using this, and you'd be developing protocols and processes that are surrounding your team or your 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 product that you're developing in in cycling and and using every one of these tools. Absolutely, um, that's how I see it in the design process. Um, it, it, the only change is when you say, "Well, look, you have to pay ten thousand dollars a day to use this wind tunnel." Then, then you start to <laughs> consider other options. Yeah, I don't know about you, but that might be slightly outside my budget. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a touch outside my budget. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm fine with you know having a pro athlete get fitted and tested um, in a wind tunnel and then using that data to you know to help that athlete but th- you're never going to find me testing myself in a wind tunnel i don't have the ftp to justify it we've uh, what, what what excites me about this kind of conversation and conversations of this type is that the position of the athlete because obviously the athlete is the vast majority of the drag so the position of the athlete is really where the biggest gains are made and this was highlighted for me 
in that uh, and or that conversation we had with Kurt Bergen Taylor. You know, we mentioned this on our, on our on last week's episode how he's got guys who are big dudes with CDAs in the one point in the point one sixes, which again it doesn't is kind of blows my mind. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that that is uh, a, the lowest hanging fruit is your body position. Um, you know, certainly once you get it configured to a new bike frame, um, you would want to do that again, but again, it's a pretty low cost item to refine and you can see pretty big gains from that, um, refinement process if you're just starting out. Yeah. The only disadvantage, and this is something that I've found personally trying to market the virtual wind tunnel is that people like shiny things, people like carbon. Uh, so even if it makes you faster, that is the one challenge. But that being said, the pros aren't interested in how shiny their carbon is. They're interested in being at the finish line first. And I think that that carries a lot more weight for them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even even the pros can can be caught in the um, caught in the mix of, of hype, marketing hype and things like that around different products and whether what product is really, truly uh, the highest performing product that they can be using or what is truly giving them the best benefit. And uh, I'm, I'm okay with them using what they feel uh, comfortable in because sometimes that, that, that placebo type effect is actually um, quite useful to have, uh, even though it may not be per- the most efficient, maybe it's a fraction under, but uh, the placebo effect alone can give them kind of the boost they need to be excited about this. Yeah. And actually we've had a couple discussions about sports psychology in the past. And I think that's an excellent point as well. The placebo effect is incredibly strong. It's been very well documented. And if you feel you are fastest and you feel you have been optimized to the maximum amount possible on your given equipment, then that probably provides you more of a benefit than having slightly better equipment, but a worse outlook on it. Exactly. Without a doubt though, the main thread line of this this topic we're on, which is body positioning, I think that um, there's going to be huge gains that we see from the use of whether it's virtual wind tunnel testing or aero sensor field testing um, from athletes of all skill levels, because um, it'll be cost competitive for, for those athletes who are looking to get as much gain as they can without breaking the bank um, in the process. I, I really think we're at the golden time here for technology and sports coming together. It's just, it's worked out very well. So I'm super excited. Me as well. Me too. And I think also um, as as much fun as it is to buy stuff, you know, like sexy looking wheels and things, uh, I think there's a, there's an appeal to a service, right? So when you're, when you're coming in and you've got FaceTime after, you know, COVID, <laughs> or you got FaceTime with a professional with, who, who, who helps you get yeah. faster and gives you that that you know that that feeling of confidence that you guys were just talking about, um, and 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 markedly improves your your outcome. I think there's there's that's an that's a that's a pretty easy sell because it's it's you know everyone likes to likes to have the the service aspect of a, of a interaction. I think. Yeah, I agree. And when you have someone providing that service who you know, the, the athlete sees that that person has a track record of success and working with really good athletes. They go into that scenario with that positive attitude and with, you know, get, and they know that they're getting good advice and they know that they're getting good feedback because they know that this person's been trained properly in this and they don't need to go in there racking their brain over what, you know, they need to think about doing. And 
that, that sort of leads into my thought of as well of using these devices like aero sensors or aero lab sensor, any aero sensor in a race. I would prefer that an athlete's already sort of they've worked out the they've worked out their positioning, they've refined it, they've practiced in it, and now they think about race day. They can mentally think about nutrition and strategy and all the key things that you want to be thinking about in race day and not sitting there staring at your CDA meter saying, maybe I should move my arm down a little. That's a really good point because there, you know, we talk often about, um, you know, data overload, information overload, and what you should be, when I speak to my athletes, I mean, what you should be looking at when you're racing on your, on your Garmin, what's actionable information and what, you know, what do you do when you're, when the information you're seeing doesn't align with what you expect it to be. And given the, like the insane variability of CDA, um, as we talked about, it seems like a long time ago already, Chris, um, <laughs> how, like, you know, you get a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a side breeze or you turn, you turn a corner and uh, the CDA changes because the yaw conditions change. And then there you are as an athlete looking at a number that changes dramatically and wondering what the hell am I doing wrong or how am I doing it so right all of a sudden? Uh, it's not actionable information. I'm with you 100% on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I agree 100%. And, and you would see those changes undoubtedly. I mean, um, I am really interested, I mean, from, from a research point of view of long-term draft effects on, you know, trains of riders in low wind conditions. And how, if you get out of the swim in, in a triathlon or an Ironman event and you, and you stay with that lead pack, how much of a benefit are you gaining in, in, in the ride while riding legally, but staying within that bike train and how much that benefit is. And you really can measure that benefit the most when you look at, say, aerosensor measurements and measuring sort of the time average wake of the uh, the rider that's in front of you who's a few meet, you know a few meters ahead, but legally. And that's that's a research interest of mine. And we've measured those effects a little bit and measured that under certain conditions, you know, low wind conditions. You you're at a huge disadvantage if you're not coming out of the swim with the lead pack, and there's also a psychological advantage. But that's not something where I want someone to see their CDA on race day. You want them focused on the task at hand, which is um, which is the race in front of them. And that actually highlights one of the big limitations of a wind tunnel, where if you're trying to get a train of forty riders lined up, um, good luck. <laughs> I think NASA <laughs> has a wind tunnel that might be able to do that. Um, but, uh, aside from that, you're, and at that point you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to study something like that. So really on the road or numerically is the only way to actually to do that. And even numerically you're running into a bunch of huge issues with, uh, boundary conditions and just changing conditions throughout the, the actual ride. So, um, so that is a big challenge. And like you said, it's a, an important area of research because it's not really understood. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. So Chris, when we started this conversation, you were concerned about having enough to say and uh, having to fill the uh, the time <laughs> that we, we, you know, try to run these episodes. And now that we're, we're well past that time, um, I'm, uh, I'm going to say that this has been an awesome chat. And uh, I think we should have a follow up because there's still there are lots of stones that we left unturned here. Yeah, I would love to have a follow up. There's, there's, you know, I'm itching to talk about all of these things because you, you don't often get this opportunity very, especially in the current situation with COVID to really connect with people and, and talk about these, these technological challenges, these exciting advancements in the sport, um, you know, what, what different people's perspectives are. And so definitely I would look forward to doing it again. It was a, it was a lot of fun 
uh, doing this today. Yeah, and we really appreciate the time for you coming to talk to us. Um, I always enjoy the opportunity to geek out about aerodynamics. And for me, talking to someone like you, who's definitely on the same page, it's uh, it's just such an awesome opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. So if someone's interested in in basically getting a hold of your services, you've mentioned that it's not directly targeted at the end user at this point. So would you recommend they contact their coach and then their coach contacts you or what's the best method for that? Yeah, so our our website is going to be releasing um, sort of a survey that's directed towards coaches and a sign up that's directed towards coaches, fitters, uh, teams and engineers in order for them to uh, sign up to get access to our early release units. We're releasing um, 150 or so units between now and November. And then after that, there's going to be uh, a larger launch in January. Um, and so if you want to find out, continue to get updates, our uh, website will be coming live soon with a new survey and lots of new information. Video content's going to be starting over the next uh, two months on our Instagram and we'll probably post it on YouTube as well, which where we'll show some training videos on how you use the technology. And then of course, uh, absolutely, you will want, if you're interested in this technology, start to um, contact your coach, contact your fitters and ask if they've been looking into this technology and um, have them get a hold of us because we're, we're looking for fitters who service uh, the, the greater triathlon and cycling community. Um, to, to let us know their interests so that we can engage with you and, and get you one of these early release units. Yeah, on my end, folks, if you're in the Toronto area and this is something that is of interest to you, uh, send me a note and I'll, uh, I'll pass it on to Chris. Uh, and if there's, if there's critical mass, I'm, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to pick one of these units up. Because this, like, this is right up my alley as far as, you know, professional interests.